0: to First Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we're actually going to jump back and uh, we'll get into the verses that Jordan read. We're going to be starting in chapter 4, verse 13. And there won't be any slide. In fact, this is the only slide that we have. So if you like it, take a picture of it. If you don't like it, just ignore it. You'll want to have your copy of God's Word in front of you. <clears throat> and while you're turning there, I want to tell you, I, I found out recently <clears throat> that during World War II, For whatever reason, God has me in these conversations or in books about things that happened in and around World War II, and I'm not exactly sure why. But I found out recently that during World War II, there were planes that would drag gliders, right? They would fly for about an hour or so, and the glider would have a pilot and a co-pilot, and it'd have uh, some equipment and things like that. And and, uh, the plane would fly into enemy territory, and they would release the glider. The glider would fly for an average of about 30 seconds and land behind enemy lines. Sometimes they would land with with small bulldozers so they could could, uh, rake out some land so that bigger planes could come in, planes with engines, planes with the means of getting back to where they were going. Sometimes they would have jeeps, sometimes they would just have troops, and the troops were to drop in behind enemy lines in order to make their way back to a different front to try to get a different kind of advantage. And I found out one of the one of the interesting things, because it just boggled my mind to think that they would, the, the military would take a perfectly good plane without an engine and land it somewhere. Because I was thinking most of the time it would have to be destroyed. And sure enough, the guy I was talking to said that, yeah, about 75% of the time, these gliders were scuttled. They were destroyed on landing. They were just left and never to be returned. Some of the time, about 25% of the time, the, the mission was if the guys landed well enough, if the plane was in good enough shape, then they would put up something that looked like goalposts on a football stadium, right? We're going to look at these this afternoon if you, ever, if you watch any of the football games. So you've got this big goalpost up there, you've got a bungee cord between it, and, the, and on one end of the bungee cord is this glider, and on the other end, way up high, is this cord, and what would happen is the, is a plane with an engine would fly low enough and would grab that bungee and... Yank the other plane into the air. The gentleman I talked to said it would, the glider would be airborne in about 20 feet. So imagine what it would feel like to have this plane coming through, and all of a sudden you're going, right, and you're up in the air, and you're at someone else's thing. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. Imagine, if you will, you are the pilot, you're a crew member, you're someone in that glider, your plane is behind enemy lines. Your mission is to remain there until someone else comes to get you. You have no means of escape. You have no means of getting out unless someone else comes. Unless someone else. uh, There's that, as I think about it, there's that feeling of loneliness. There's a feeling of desperation. There's that feeling of just what's going to happen, the unknown. So I want you to just hold on to that feeling, kind of put it in the back of your mind for a minute as we dive into what we're talking about today, because the, up to this point, we're, you know, again, we're in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, up to this point in, in the letter, Paul has thanked God for the work that he's been doing in the Thessalonians' lives. He's given God praise that in spite of the suffering they're facing and in spite of their persecution, they have r- r- maintained this love, this faith in God. They haven't been hindered. And as we saw uh, last week, you know, they, they might have had a few things wrong, but here the th- God, Paul is trying to help the Thessalonians understand now that you're out of this other lifestyle, now that you're away from that, this is how you should live as a person of God. This is who you've been called to be. So don't act this way, act this way. So today, as we look at the next couple of paragraphs in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in 13, Paul seems to be responding to some questions that the Thessalonians had. And I assume there are questions that Timothy, when he was there, couldn't answer for them. He couldn't tell them what was going on. He couldn't give them a good enough answer. It's like, I just don't know. Let me go back and talk to Paul. And Paul will let us know what he knows from the Lord. And so Paul responds to their questions and as we look at this, it seems like there are three principles that we can glean from what Paul is saying. The first is our hope in death. The second, our charge in life. The third, our ministry in both. Our hope in death, our charge in life, and our ministry in both life and death. And so let's begin where Paul does. If you, again, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, we see there, I think, our hope In death. You know, they say that there are only two guarantees in life death and taxes. Everybody will die, and everybody is supposed to pay taxes. Death is a reality that all of us face, and for some, it's a daunting thing to fear, largely because it's unknown. For others, it's a thing that they look forward to in God's perfect time because of the hope that they have. Imagine being two different people walking to death with two completely different perspectives. One rejoicing, one mourning. And yet that is the reality that we have. In fact, there are a lot of different views about what happens when you die. For the first century Roman culture, there were differing opinions as well. Some people thought that when you died, your soul and body got separated and your soul went somewhere else and went to the place of the dead. Or, or maybe if you were a really good person, you got deified to the realm of the gods. They believed that Alexander the Great was deified after his many conquerors. Some people think that in that culture, believed that the soul just continued in persistent existence in the grave. Stuck there with nowhere to go. Just the soul alive forever in a dead body. Other people felt like, well, death is just the end. There's no afterlife. There's nothing. What, What you see is what you get. And I think even in our day, for some people, death has no hope. It is simply the end. Some people think that I'm going to live my best or only life and I'm going to die and that's it. I'm going to do the best I can, leave, hopefully leave this place either better than, it, than I found it or I'm going to take up as much as I can while I'm here. For others, there's a sense in which generally the good things we do outweigh the bad. For some people, and I find this so interesting because I don't know where this comes from, biblically but some people especially nominal christians have this idea that when you die you get wings i don't know how many times i've seen that on facebook so and so got their wings they're looking down from heaven as though we become angels scripture is clear angels and people are completely different and let me just dispel any myths we do not become angels when we die right? We've been created in the image of God. Angels are not. They're a different purpose altogether. And so for the Thessalonian Christians, they were looking forward so much to the return of Christ. They were looking forward to Jesus coming back. And now they had to wrestle with the fact that some of their saints, some of their brothers and sisters were dead, and so they're thinking about this, thinking about all of the other things. Remember, imagine coming into this from their Roman culture, all of those things that I talked about. And they're thinking, well, what happens to dead Christians? What happens when brothers and sisters die? Will Is there hope for them? And so Paul brings them this sense of hope, which is grounded in resurrection through Jesus Christ. So our hope in death is resurrection. Through Jesus Christ. Paul's justification is that because Jesus rose from the dead, God will cause those who have faith in Jesus to rise from the dead as well. And he writes, if you look in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with those Bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord always. In fact, there's almost an advantage that Paul says. He says, those who are dead, they're going to get there first. So you should look forward to dying before Jesus comes back because you're going to see him before anybody else does. But notice our hope in the resurrection is not just wishful thinking. It's not based on myth. Or folklore, our hope in the resurrection is based on the fact that Jesus Christ died fully dead, all dead, not partially dead or mostly dead like the princess bride. He was all dead and in the grave, and he came back to life. Death is only a permanent end when sin has victory. But since Jesus rose from the grave and conquered the deadly enemy, sin. Death has no hold on us. And Jesus told his disciples that he would return. And, he, and when he returned from the grave and then ascended to heaven and, and promised that he will return again. So we have this hope. Now, I don't know if you saw it, but when, when we look at this passage, a lot of people think, look at this and they say, well, is this the rapture? Is this what we heard about growing up? And I want to tell you, I think this is a rapture, but is it the rapture? See, notice when Jesus returns, he's coming back from heaven. And Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will meet him in the air. And the language that Paul uses there is like someone going out and sending a a welcoming party to welcome someone into town. So it's almost as though Paul says we're going to go and meet Jesus in the air and we're going to come with him when he comes back to reign and rule here on earth. Growing up, I was taught that some of this passage informed us that that there was a rapture, that we would all be, that believers would be raptured up to heaven. We'd be with God in heaven while, while there's this great tribulation happening down here and then there'd be a judgment sometime later. If that's the case, this passage is not telling us that. This passage is telling us something different. So I want to encourage us not to piecemeal different things together. This seems to be communicating. We will go up in the air, but Jesus is on his way here to reign, and we will reign with him. So, beloved, our hope in death is resurrection because Jesus rose from the grave. But in this next section, Paul expounds on the return of Christ or what he calls the day of the Lord or a day of judgment as he gives us this, our charge in life. And we see this in verses one to 10 of chapter five. And he roots this in knowledge or information that the the Thessalonians already have. Look at verses one and two. Paul writes, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You see, already they had engaged in various conversations about this. Must have been when Paul was there, he said, yeah, Jesus is coming back, and he could come back any time, which is why the Thessalonians were so looking forward to it. In fact, we're going to see when we get to 2 Thessalonians that some of them weren't working because they figured, hey, why work if Jesus is coming back? Why go through all that trouble if Jesus is coming back? And so he essentially communicates that, yes, the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. And it's almost as though some of them forgot this. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to be reminded over and over and over and over and over again these things. Over the years, there have been numerous people who tried to predict the day of the Lord. There were 88 reasons that, God, that Jesus was going to come back in 1988. 1988. And then the guy had his math wrong. So he said, no, it's 89. We're all still here. There were other theories that were going to happen around the turn of the century when all the computers went from 1999 to 2000. They thought, oh, that's the end. We're all still here. Jesus even told his disciples in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, Jesus doesn't even know, only the Father. And the point that Paul and Jesus and the rest of the New Testament is communicating about the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord, is that it will come without notice. There will be some things that have to happen and we can read in other parts of Scripture, yeah, these things must happen and I think a lot of those things have happened, which means that the return of the Lord could happen at any time. But in Thessalonica and the Roman Empire, there were a lot of people who were thinking, oh, we've got this great peace. They called it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And Paul even alludes to it. He talks about them them touting the safety that they have. But for many, that peace lured them into a drunken stupor of false security and darkened understanding of spiritual realities. Look at verses 3 to 5. It says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as the labor pains come on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Here in the United States, there's a sense in which I think we have a very similar False sense of security. We think that if if there's food on the table or in the fridge, if there's money in the bank account, if there's a job we can go to, if, if there's a general sense of peace, hey, we're okay. We just go from one day to the next like a hamster running around in a wheel, plodding along, not getting anywhere, happily scurrying, but making no meaningful difference. And yet Paul's admonition for us is not to be in a stupor, not just to keep going through the motions. Instead, he challenges us to be alert and be sober. Look at what it says in verses 6 and 7. It says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So Paul urges them, and he urges us, I think, to be alert, to keep awake. In other words, don't get lulled to sleep by this false sense of security. Pay attention to the times in which we live. We don't need to act out or lash out, but we need to be aware. In fact, Jesus, again, in Matthew twenty four forty two said, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So how do we do that? How do we stay awake? I don't know. There, I, there are so many times when, when Danielle and I will we'll get in bed and we'll lay down. And, and, and I, for whatever reason, about 9.30, my eyes just slam shut and I'm out. And last night, she was, we were talking a bit. It, this happened a few weeks ago. I was, I, I, uh, she was telling me something, and I just couldn't keep my eyes open. And I fell asleep. And then she said something, and I woke back up. So I had to sit up to finish the conversation. Last night, I was, I was dog-tired. and She was saying some things, and she paused and was doing something else, and she likes to read before going to sleep. And I said, can I go to sleep? She smiled. It's, yeah. But Paul, here, so the challenge, we all need sleep. So what's Paul talking about? What's he saying? Stay awake so you can talk to your spouse? No, he's saying be sober or be self-controlled. See, throughout this passage, I don't know if you saw it, Paul is contrasting people of the day from people of the night. People who sleep, who are in a stupor, people who are drunk, people who are impaired versus people who are awake and alert and active and paying attention. In verse 8, he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. You see, as people who have trusted in Jesus as Savior, we have already believed. And so Paul notes, he said, you have already put on this breastplate of faith and love. And in Ephesians chapter 6, when he talks about the armor of God, he calls this the breastplate of righteousness. And I think in some ways this is a breastplate or a protection found in right living. Think about this. While a breastplate, in, in ancient times, a breastplate was like a, a piece of armor that someone would put outside of their clothing. They would have their normal cloak on. They'd have their shirt or their, their robe or whatever they were wearing. And then they'd have this, breast, uh, this breastplate over top so you could see it. And I think in our lives, this breastplate of faith and love is something that needs to be visible in our lives. People need to know that there is something we believe. They need to know by our actions and by our words that there's something different about us. And sometimes I think we do need to be explicit about it. Letting people know, yeah, I'm not gonna do that. I'm a follower of Christ. Yesterday I met a, a guy who, who used to be a missionary in Yemen. And I, oh man, this, this guy, he could talk your ear off. We were, it, was, it was really funny. But he said while well, he was in Yemen, of course, Yemen uh, is, a, is a Muslim nation. And he said while he was there, he would go around to various places and he would engage people in conversation right off the bat. He was a big guy, had a big beard, kind of blended in a bit. People could tell from his accent that he wasn't local. And so he, he would go into like a tea shop and guys would come in and they'd engage in this great conversation. And someone new would come and he'd say, who are you? And they'd give him his name. And they'd ask him, are you Muslim? And the guy, I mean, you just got to know this, this is the way this guy was. He's like, are you kidding? I would never believe that man made fake religion. And they would get into this great conversation about it. And you were thinking, this is Yemen. Are you sure you want to talk like that in Yemen? But he did for four and a half years. He shared the gospel with person after person after person. People would call him up and say, hey, can I talk with you? Yeah, yeah, come on over. So he'd come back to his house, and they'd talk for a bit. And so they'd talk about all the, all the a whole variety of things. And finally, he'd end up giving them a Bible in Arabic and say, will you read this? And they would go back and read it. And finally, they'd end up meeting three or four other Yemeni guys who now are followers of Christ. And they all have a Bible. And they're like, oh, you're a believer, too? But I think it's because this guy made his faith known. And if he could do it in Yemen, where his life was on the line, beloved, we need to do it here. I was so convicted talking to this guy last night. I'm like, man, I am a scumbag when it comes to wearing my breastplate of faith boldly. See, faith seems to represent the confidence that we have in God's sovereignty and in his plan of salvation It is a protection. So we need to stay the course. We need to not compromise when the pressures come. James urged his readers, he said that faith without works is dead. So beloved, we must let our faith be seen. But he also said this breastplate is not only of faith, but it is of love. This is how we act toward other people. Working toward the good or benefit or blessing of others. But he also says there's a, another thing. Not only have they already put on that breastplate, but he said you've put on this helmet of the hope of salvation, this confident knowledge that our salvation is not in political powers or wealth or ease or relationships, but it is in Jesus Christ alone. Gene Green notes in his commentary, he says Paul tells the church that the fundamental Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope become the defensive armor that will ensure that the Christians are prepared for the day of the Lord whenever it comes. These themes of faith, love, and hope are things that Paul actually mentioned earlier in the letter. In fact, in in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ there was something he saw in them and thanked God for them and encouraged them to persist in that. So no matter the season or the circumstances in which God has us, we are to continue in faith, love, and hope as well. So our hope in death is the resurrection through Jesus Christ. Our charge in life is to be alert, and self-controlled, exhibiting faith and love and how we live and the confident hope of our salvation. finally, Paul, I think Paul communicates thirdly, that um, our ministry in both life and death, our ministry in both life and death. Paul concludes, if you notice at the end of chapter four, Paul says he encourages them, he says. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So after telling them, hey, the dead are going to go up first, encourage one another with these words. And then at the, at the end of this little section in chapter 5, he tells them, encourage one another and build each other up. When Zoe was little, she learned a song at, at, at school. I want to teach it to you. We might, we're going to have all the kids in here in a couple of weeks. We might teach this to them. So you guys got to be ready. But the song is real simple, and it goes kind of like this. It says, Encourage one another and build each other up. Build each other up. Build each other up. Encourage one another and build each other up. up. Up, 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 up. Up, up. So imagine when you're doing it with elementary schoolers, you got to go, encourage one another and build each other up. You can sing along. Build each other up. I won't make you do the motions. Build each other up. Encourage one another and build each other up. And then you go down. Up, 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 up. Up, up. There's another part that has tearing down. We're not going to get into that part. But the whole idea, now that that song has been running through my head all week, so now I can run it through your head all afternoon. But think about this. We are to call, to encourage one another to build each other up in the knowledge that Paul has just shared with the Thessalonian believers. Think about it. Some of these people were grieving. And so he's not telling them. He says, don't grieve. He says, I want you to grieve, but have hope. So we need to encourage one another when they are grieving with the hope of the resurrection. When we have brothers and sisters facing death, we need to encourage them and build them up. Let them know that this life, as Rick Warren says, is just preparation for eternity. Death is not the end. In the chaos of life, when everything seems to be going astray, when health is not good, the finances are bad, the food is not there, the friendships are going awry, we need to encourage each other. Jesus is coming again. When the decline of our cultural values continues to plummet, we need to encourage one another. When it seems hopeless, as our society moves further and further away, Jesus will come and judge. We get to be faithful until he does. And so Paul has urged the Thessalonians regarding our hope in death, our charge in life, and our ministry in both. But there is one more thing that we need to look at, and that is the coming judgment. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. Paul writes, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Beloved, no one knows the time when Jesus is going to come back. But there will be a judgment. And because of the sinfulness of humanity, God in his justice will judge the world. He will judge humanity. And yet God desires that no one should perish. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Beloved, this is a message that we get to convey to the world around us. They think that as long as, as long as there's general peace, as long as there's the stock market's doing what it should do, yeah, things are okay. We need to make sure that they're aware that there's something more. And so friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you. I want you to make you aware. One of the things Paul says twice in this passage is, is either saying, I don't want you to be uninformed or I want you to remind what you know. So I want you to not be uninformed, friend. If you're not a follower of Christ, know that that there will be a day of judgment. And I don't want you to walk toward that in fear. I would rather want you to walk toward Christ knowing that he did something so you wouldn't have to face that judgment on your own. There is a means of escape because Jesus paid for your life with his. If you will confess your sin, Repent and trust in Him to be your Savior. You know, I told you at the beginning about these guys during World War II who would glide in in motorless airplanes behind enemy lines, waiting. They would, they would have to serve, do whatever they did. Some of them would have the mission to come back to the, to the front line. But I want you to think about this. Imagine that we are there, we're on this plane, we've been in, we're behind enemy lines, and now it is our mission to go and gather as many people to get back to that plane, it's a big plane, to get back to that plane before our rescue comes. We don't know when that is, but we need to go and get them there. Will we convey that message to the world around us? And friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, are you there on that plane? And the way you get there is by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, in His finished work on the cross. If if you're not near that plane, if you're not there, then let me just challenge you. At some point in time, there will be that judgment day, and you will stand before God, and He'll ask you, what have you done with Jesus Christ? Oh, I followed his teaching. I tried to be good. No, that's not good enough. What have you done with your sin? Oh, it's scales. I'm better than I am worse. I'm not perfect. And God will say the, the expectation is perfection. The expectation is perfection. That guy that I talked to yesterday... Grew up in another tradition. And he said, as he was sprinkled as a child. And and early on, people said, yeah, that covered your original sin, your sprinkling. And he said, by the time I was two, I knew I had my own sin. He said, I already messed up. And he said he would go to camp after camp after camp. And he gave his life to Christ. He'd go to VBS. His mom sent him to vacation Bible school every week of the summer. And he went forward every week and said the same prayer, got dunked three, four, five times. But when he was 16, he said, I I was a rebellious kid. I had a, a, a drug problem. I was not living right. And here I was at another camp. He said, that's when God finally got a hold of my heart because that's when I realized there would be a judgment. And all my false words All my false prayers were nothing more than. But He said it was that night that he repented of his sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as his Savior. Friend, if you've not done that, may that be today. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much.